freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop us. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone. Or you would be. Behind when the operation of the machine becomes so odious. Makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, by all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others will take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not give that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And yeah, we're going to get back to your host.
Oh, okay, that looks promising. <laughs> I think I made it. I think I made it. Okay. Right. <laughs> Let me get back into the chat room. You're listening to Free Association, uh, in case you didn't already know. Uh, my name's Dennis, and I'm at the Central Station in Newcastle. I had to move from uh, my, my apartment, because I can't get on the internet there, so I'm in the, I'm in the railway station. Just double check that I'm on air. It looks like I'm on air. Right, so I'm going to carry on regardless, as I tend to do. And I'll. It's maybe a little bit noisy here, but uh, I'll just I'll just do what I can do, and we'll we'll get through it. Forty-five minutes. Still got time for a reasonable show, I think. Give or take one or two technical issues. We got there in the end. It's cost me two pounds for a cup of coffee, like. But, uh, alright, first show in a month, though, May Street. I think uh, a month is enough, really. Uh, but I don't want to keep paying two pounds for a cup of coffee every time I've got to do a radio show. I don't want to get in the habit of it, but I don't mind doing it now and again. Alright, so. In the month that I've not been on air, well, on Saturdays, what's happened in the world? There's been nothing much has happened in the world at all, that's it. There's been no, no, no wars or rumours of wars going on, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so the same old, same old. Uh, Covid ended and the war in Ukraine started. But what can you do? It's an obvious sign that... Something is happening behind the scenes. Uh, you, you can see, you can see that something's happening behind the scenes by the time of it. It doesn't. You don't need to be a genius. It might, it might be an emerging property of a complex system. It might be somebody smoking cigars with their mates in a hotel room somewhere in Belgium or wherever, or, or in a hotel room in, in Davos in Switzerland. Or it may just be synchronicity. There's no way to know for sure. There is literally no way to know for sure. So the only assumption I can make is that uh, whichever theory fits the circumstances and predicts the next set of circumstances is the one that's most likely to be true. That's all I can do. I can't. I can't know anything really. So. And I don't really claim to know anything, but uh, I was going to play a piece from a couple of guys who do a show called The Duran, which I've been listening to since the war in Ukraine started, and they did a three-hour show yesterday, and I want to just play 15 or 20 minutes of it. Maybe slightly longer than 15 or 20 minutes because it is a bit noisy in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is on uh, the shows on Odyssey and on Rumble, and they post it on YouTube, so it is around. Uh, this one's called Russia Ukraine Sitmet 
21 days and 8 years and fighting live. 3 hours and 22 minutes it is. I started about 9, nine minutes in. And I should pick up where I wanted to start playing. Uh, let me share my screen while that's happening. We're live, Alexander. So, you, know? you hear me? Absolutely, so, I can hear you clearly. And, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, anticipating an, an exceptional live, if I may say. Hello there. And how you see things moving forward. I don't know. Well, I think today the big news is going to be this meeting, this telephone call between Biden and Xi Jinping. And um, the Chinese, very uncharacteristically, have been briefing people in advance of it. And they've been making it absolutely clear as crystal that they will push back very hard if the US tries to pressure them to take any position which is essentially hostile to Russia on, uh, um, on Ukraine. So um, when the Russians and the Chinese were saying at the beginning of February that they each have the others back, it's turning out that it's turning out exactly like that. I, I'm going to make a quick observation. I think that it was a serious mistake for the U.S. administration to uh, um, engage in, with China in this way. I think that they perhaps if they did underestimate the extent to which the Chinese were going to stand by the Russians, then that was a major miscalculation. And I think also to try to put pressure on China, anybody who has any experience at all of modern Chinese history would know that the worst thing to try and do with China is to do, try to put pressure on them. The kind of history that China went through over the last 200 years means that no Chinese government can ever be seen to bend to pressure in that kind of way, and that they'll just harden their positions in response, and they're already threatening countermeasures. So I think that's, that's one thing that's happened. The other thing that's happening is if we're talking about the economics, it's, I think, becoming increasingly clear, exactly as Gonzalo uh, uh, had been saying in earlier programs, exactly as Tom Longo said in the one program so far that we've done with him, though I'm sure that we'll be doing more, that the attempt to destroy the Russian economy, uh, at least for the time being, at least, has, has failed. The financial situation is stable. Interestingly, Putin has reappointed Elvira Nabulina to be chair of the Russian Central Bank. There were rumours that she was going to resign, that she was, you know, opposed to this whole operation. Well, that clearly isn't the case. And um, she's still there. She's, I'm going to say this straightforwardly, and I've been somebody who's been very critical of her in the past. Um, I felt that her interest rate policy for, for a long time was too harsh. I think she's handled the situation at the moment with great skill. And clearly, people who are looking for divisions within the Russian political class on this issue are, 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 are wrong. So, stabilisation in Russia, growing queasiness in Europe, and I suspect also increasingly in the United States, because I think things are not turning out quite the way people expected. 
Oil prices are now once again above $100 and they're going to go on rising. Nobody should be under any doubts about this. MBS in Saudi Arabia is still refusing to take Biden's course. Um, the foreign minister of the U- UAE has just been in Moscow, where he's been talking with Lavrov, and that was another friendly visit, apparently. So I think the economics are not turning out in the way that people anticipated. We're definitely, I think, heading into a serious recession in the West. And, of course, it's a recession where there are going to be structural problems, which we've now created for ourselves through this overreach of sanctions that I think we can't really extricate ourselves from. And if you want to see the doubts, the worries, the fears that are now uh, uh, circulating, go to The Economist. The Economist is the most anti-Russian, neocon type magazine in Britain. I mean, it is it, it, it outdoes all the others. And you see that the headline article in The Economist is the alternative world order, China, Russia, and the others. Very much all the things that uh, um, um, Gonzalo was saying, but even The Economist is now starting to acknowledge that it's beginning to take shape. Gonzalo, what do you think? What do you want to uh, discuss? Oh, sorry about that. I, I, I thought I was, I muted myself actually to listen to uh, Alexander. Uh, no, I, I completely agree with... Uh, okay, with I'm sorry. Uh, it, it seems very clear that the sanctions... Uh, I want to stop that there because there's an update that's just been posted literally about half an hour ago by the same guy, uh, Alexander, somebody whose name I can't pronounce. Let's have a look. Alexander Mercurius. So I'm just going to let this play. This has literally been posted on Odyssey 40 minutes ago, so it's hot off the presses. Good day. This is going to be a brief video um, just to summarise some of the latest developments in Ukraine. But before I turn to it, can I just quickly remind people who are watching us on Rumble that if they go to the top of the video, they will see a red maroon button. If you press that red maroon button, it will take you directly to our locals homepage where you can become an active member of our locals community. Join me in my live streams every Wednesday at 1400 hours Eastern Standard Time and also publish your own exclusive content. Now, This is, as I said, going to be a short video, but events are now in Ukraine moving as we've been discussing at length in various programs, both here on this channel and on our main channel, the Duran, and in Alex Christoforo's update towards what looks like to be, if not exactly the military endgame, at least perhaps something that begins to approximate to it. Briefly, the Western media has suddenly uh, woken up to the fact that the key, the key town of Mariupol on the Sea of Azov um, is about to fall to the Russians, or I should say perhaps to a combination of three forces, all of which are active in Mariupol, fighting the Ukrainian military there, which is to say the Russian army, 
the militia of the two breakaway republics of the Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, and the irregular forces of the Chechen Republic, which is, of course, a constituent republic of the Russian Federation. There's suddenly been a flurry of news reports originating from Ukraine, which confirm that the fighting in Mariupol has now reached the city centre. And I've also received some reports, which are, I should stress, from Russian sources, and which I cannot corroborate, that the uh, resistance now is largely, the Ukrainian resistance now, is now largely confined to the Azovstal steelworks, a gigantic factory, um, presumably on the outskirts of Mariupol, which has now, it seems, become the main focus of Ukrainian resistance, and where many of the um, soldiers of the hardline radical battalions, I have to use careful language here, but um, many identified the members of this battalion with the political movement that was so influential in Germany and Central Europe in the middle of the 20th century. Anyway, that the soldiers of this uh, battalion or of these forces have now apparently withdrawn or largely withdrawn to the Azov-style factory for their last stand. Now, I want to make it again very clear that that last piece of information comes from Russian sources, which I cannot corroborate. I obviously don't have information, direct information on the ground. Other reports suggest that there are still Ukrainian forces resisting elsewhere in central Mariupol, though it seems that their chances of uh, withstanding the advances of the Russians and of their militia and Chechen allies are now becoming increasingly slim. It's also apparently the case that Mariupol Airport has now been captured by the Russians, and it seems that there are increasingly urgent requests from the Ukrainian forces in Mariupol, um, sent, interestingly enough, through uh, um, phones and videos, video appeals to the Ukrainian command in Kiev to send a force to relieve them, something which it's become absolutely obvious to me and for some time that the Ukrainian military is in no position to do. Now, I have to say that the latter is, <coughs> to my mind, a completely predictable result of what one might call the propaganda of success that we have been hearing coming out of Kiev and much of the Western media for the last uh, two weeks or so. Um, if you are constantly claiming that you are winning the war when you're actually losing, then, of course, the risk you run is that people who are fighting will start to believe you and will start to make demands that you do things which you're not actually able to do. So it seems to me that the Ukrainian forces trapped in Mariupol, who presumably take their news from the Western media and from what Kiev has been saying, perhaps unsurprisingly, have um, acquired a false understanding of the war 
and therefore have been demanding that action be taken to uh, relieve them, to, uh, that a, you know, a Ukrainian force be sent to break the siege of Mariupol, and perhaps predictably, and again, I have to say this, I can't corroborate this. I've seen some of the videos, but as I don't speak Ukrainian, I can't verify always what they say. But I get the sense that some of the people in Mariupol who are trapped there are start to feel, uh, the, a sort of narrative of betrayal is beginning to circulate amongst them. And perhaps not entirely without cause, because the Russian military have said that they actually made a proposal to the authorities in Kiev that these troops actually withdraw from Mariupol. The suggestion was that if they lay down their arms and agree to withdraw from Mariupol, and if Kiev agrees to have them withdraw from Mariupol, then the Russians would not stand in the way of that withdrawal. And very strangely, the Ukrainians rejected that proposal. And I find that difficult to understand, by the way, but there are possible explanations to it. One explanation is that people in Kiev have become either um, trapped within their own narrative of success, and they would find it difficult to admit that Mariupol was being abandoned in light of their various claims of success and victory, so that they found it very difficult to agree to this withdrawal in a way that would be consistent with their own narrative, and therefore they've been forced to reject it. Or alternatively, it could be that there's actually some kind of cognitive dissonance within Kiev itself, about some of the leaders there, some of the political leaders, have themselves believed this narrative and therefore are unable to bring themselves to accept that their position in eastern Ukraine, far from being successful, is actually disastrously critical. And that was another reason why they, were, uh, they decided to reject this proposal. There is a third possibility, and I have to say it's the one that the Russians themselves are running with. I want to stress again, this is a Russian uh, uh, um, suggestion, which again, obviously, I cannot verify. But the Russians are saying that the reason that the authorities in Kiev apparently rejected the evacuation plan from uh, Mariupol is because they were, um, they're afraid that if some of these hardline radical forces are redeployed to Kiev, they could pose a potential threat to the government there. Obviously, as I said, that is a Russian construction of the reasons I'm not able to verify or confirm it one way or the other. There is perhaps one final possibility, which is, of course, that Mariupol is an important city for Ukraine's economy. It's a major steel uh, producer, it's, um, and steel has been one of Ukraine's major exports. And, of course, it's also the last holdout that Ukraine has on the Sea of Azov. Its fall would be a recognition that the entire Sea of Azov is now under Russian control and that the Russians now have a secure land bridge 
to Crimea. So perhaps there is a psychological inability to accept the retreat from Mariupol because doing so would mean another admission that Ukraine is losing control of the Donbass and is losing control of the Sea of Azov and that a land bridge, a Russian land bridge to Crimea is being created. I have to say that if the last is the reason, then I think it is a bad reason. I think that a military leadership should always take steps to protect the lives of its soldiers. Difficult opinions, as, it, as those, many of those soldiers appear to have. And I think that abandoning troops to their fate, um, encouraging them to engage in a hopeless last stand, is, to my mind, no kind of military strategy at all when it can serve no useful strategic purpose. It's all very well to expect soldiers to lay down their lives to fight bitterly to the end. If we're talking about a battle like, say, the one in Stalingrad, when um, keeping the soldiers going, the, the Soviet soldiers, the Red Army soldiers in that case, fighting was essential in order to achieve that larger objective of a strategic envelopment that the Red Army carried out over the course of the Battle of Stalingrad. But if the reality instead is that people's lives are being thrown away to no useful purpose, then that serves no conceivable military logic that I can see. And if the opportunity to withdraw these forces from Mariupol was indeed there, then I have to say it seems to me that this is not just a mistake, but even in military terms, a crime. Anyway, that is my own view. I'm obviously not someone, as most of you realise, who believes in heroic last stands. I don't really see the logic of them. And if they result in people losing their lives, I find that deeply objectionable. Anyway, elsewhere in Donbass, it seems things are also going increasingly badly for the Ukrainians. It seems that they are now being pushed back from the areas in the outskirts of Donetsk. This is apparently the strongest line that the Ukrainians had, and even that apparently is crumbling. And it seems that the situation in and around the town of Severodonetsk in the north is now becoming critical, and the prospect of a greater strategic envelopment of the Ukrainian forces, the entire Ukrainian forces in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass, now looks increasingly as if it's almost a done thing. We see, as I said, smaller encirclements around Mariupol, which is apparently now very close to, re to arriving at its final point of collapse, and another encirclement around the town of Severodonetsk, which is also approaching the point of collapse. But it seems that the greater Ukrainian army in Donbass is now also in a position where its viability as a fighting force is becoming increasingly open to question. 
Meanwhile, the Russians have also been uh, reporting that they have almost completed the blockade of the important southern city of Nikolaev. This is, I call it Nikolaev, the Ukrainians refer to it as Mikolaev, but um, I've always known it throughout my life as Nikolaev, and I'm going to stick to that name, which I understand, by the way, is the one that most of the inhabitants of the city actually use. This is an important city, apparently a very beautiful city. It's referred to in some places as a garden city, inaugurated by Catherine the Great, with a great naval arsenal and shipyard, apparently in severe disuse, which for many years was one of the major shipyards of the first the Russian and then the Soviet fleet. Well, it's been apparently now almost entirely encircled, and this has left the prospects of the Ukrainians holding on to the city, which, by the way, is west of Crimea, so it's far detached from the right fighting in the Donbass. It's left this, the prospects of the Ukrainian defenders um, in this uh, city now is apparently becoming increasingly difficult. And, by the way, there have been more reports of missile strikes uh, specifically on Ukrainian facilities in and around the city of Nikolaev with Ukrainian forces there apparently suffering from Russian missile attacks, which are becoming increasingly um, dangerous for them. And at this point, perhaps I should say that the Russians have now started increasingly, or at least they've first started using their more advanced supersonic and hypersonic cruise missiles. There's reports, at least the Russians have said, that they've used for the first time one of their hypersonic missiles, the Kinjal or Dagger system, and that they've also used the supersonic Bastion system to attack Ukrainian military facilities. There is no air defense that is capable of intercepting these missile systems, and I suspect that the Russians are testing them out, but it's conceivable that we could start seeing them being used more actively over the next few days. So things are, shall we say, looking difficult for the Ukrainians, and there's, there's the first indications that this narrative of success that we've been hearing coming out of Kiev over the last couple of weeks is now starting to break down. And there are perhaps two political developments, I say political developments, we'll come to what they mean in a moment, which might point in that direction also. The first is that it's now confirmed that Viktor Medvedchuk, the Ukrainian opposition politician, somebody who has been an opponent, a consistent opponent of the pro-Maidan governments that gained power in Ukraine ever, ever since 20, the events of 2014, and somebody who has been arrested by the Ukrainians on treason charges that he's managed to escape house arrest, and it seems that his whereabouts are unknown. I am going to make a guess or a speculation that the Russians may have sprung him. He's probably, presumably, been held in Kiev or in its environs. The Russians have surrounded most of Kiev, not all of it. Contrary to some reports, 
that I read in the Western media, it seems that the Russians have deliberately left access points in Kiev um, open to the south of Kiev to allow people to leave. So Kiev is not completely surrounded and has never been completely surrounded at any point in the war. But whatever, the Russians are very close to Kiev. They're surrounded, essentially surrounded it from the north and west and to some extent the east. And I'm sure they have their own people in Kiev and have had it all the time. So I'm guessing, again, I don't know, that they are responsible for Viktor Medvedchuk's um, disappearance, that they presumably arranged for his escape, in which case he could be, at the moment, protected by the Russians somewhere. Perhaps he's even in Moscow. That's a guess. <laughs> Possibly the Ukrainians will capture him, recapture him. Maybe he's trying, hiding somewhere in Kiev at the moment. Um, but, you know, I think it is more likely than not that it is the Russians who have arranged this. But this is only a guess, again, on my part. Now, if Medvedchuk is indeed in free, free, then it's possible that if things turn in a certain direction and if uh, Kiev is eventually does fall to the Russians, well, he seems to me a much more plausible person to take over the government in Kiev for the Russians than any of the various other people, Yevgeny Muraviev and all the others that have been suggested by people in the West. So we'll see what that's all about, but it could be the first indications that the Russians are looking beyond the Zelensky administration and are thinking of setting up some kind of alternative political structure in Ukraine. Medvedchuk does lead what is the biggest opposition party in Ukraine. He has had real political support and traction in Ukraine, and above all, the Russians trust him. So that is one event. We don't have full clarity on it. Perhaps he escaped by himself. Perhaps the Ukrainian police will recapture him. But it's at least equally plausible that he is now with the Russians or in Russia, or so it seems to me. Anyway, we will no doubt find out in due course. The other event is that Zelensky has now urgently called for what he calls comprehensive talks with the Russians. Now, that's not quite clear what he means by that, because, of course, talks have been underway with the Russians for several weeks now, since, in fact, the operation, the military operation, the Russian military operation in Ukraine got started. So it's not obvious to me what Zelensky means by comprehensive talks, as opposed to the talks which have already been underway. But it does look as if this reference to comprehensive talks may mean that he does, in fact, now seek some kind of diplomatic and political solution with the Russians that goes beyond the proposals that have been floated up to now. In other words, that he's prepared finally to make some of the substantive concessions that the Russians have been demanding ever since this conflict began back in February. 
So we'll see what that means. But again, the very fact that Zelensky is calling for comprehensive talks may be a sign that realities are starting to break through and that people in Kiev, there's some reports, by the way, which of course I can't verify, that Zelensky is in Kiev at all, that he's in all sorts of places. I'm not going to speculate about that. I don't think anybody really knows. But anyway, that Zelensky, whom I'm going to assume is in Kiev, is starting to understand the gravity of the situation, and those around him are starting to understand it too. Anyway, I want to stress again, I don't want to imply from any of this that we are in any sort of end game yet, but perhaps we are starting to look at a situation where the end game begins to hover over the horizon. So we will see whether that's um, right, and we have the situation on the ground over the last couple of days. I, before finishing this video, want to return briefly to the Biden Sea conversation, which took place yesterday. The Chinese have now published a comprehensive readout of this discussion, in which the, uh, it's clear, as I discussed yesterday, that C uh, gave no ground on any substantive issue, and called when it called again for the Western powers to negotiate directly with the Russians to try to address. Russian, legitimate Russian security concerns, something, of course, which the Western powers have been deeply reluctant to do in any substantive way, any way that addresses the two key Russian points that they want a commitment from the West that there will be no further eastward expansion of NATO and that NATO military infrastructure created in Eastern Europe will be withdrawn back to the positions that it that existed before the NATO expansions that began in 1998. Now, um, I would say on the second point that far from NATO showing any willingness to withdraw its military infrastructure, at the moment all the indications are that instead it's seeking to reinforce it. But anyway, C did indeed call the US to start looking at discussing these problems with the Russians and of course he also severely criticised the US for um, its policy, its sanctions policy which he called uh, uh, wrong and indiscriminate. But something else came through in the Chinese readout which I found extremely striking and that was that um, C apparently told Biden to his face that um, all kinds of commitments were made by Biden at their last, their previous virtual summit meeting, specifically on Taiwan and on other issues, but that the United States has not acted on any of the assurances that the Americans gave. Well, I touched on that in my previous video, but what I didn't realise is that the Chinese readout says that on hearing Biden give the same reassurances all over again, uh, C 
told Biden that he noted that and took it extremely seriously. But nonetheless, she remained concerned that the US was not acting in accordance with Biden's earlier promises. Now, that is as close as one can get in a diplomatic discussion to a statement to the other side that they're acting in bad faith. That is what C's comments to Biden amount to. Um, that the Americans say one thing to the Chinese on issues like Taiwan and do the opposite. Um, in fact, they are acting in a way that the Chinese see as ultimately hostile to themselves. And for that reason, I think the Chinese see by essentially accusing the Americans of bad faith, of acting in bad faith over the, over the course of the negotiations, reinforce the point that I made yesterday, that far from this discussion between Biden and Xi, leading to a long-term improvement of relations, on the contrary, all the facts suggest the opposite. I would add that and it can be no coincidence, there is a report floating around which I take no, give no credence to whatsoever that some Russian whistleblower has published some kind of report that the Chinese were planning to attack Taiwan in the autumn and it's all over the US media. I don't give any credence to that report at all. I'm sure that the Chinese and the Russians, if they have that kind of information, would have been extremely careful to keep it to themselves. I don't think anyway that the, the Chinese have any had ever, ever had any actual plan to attack Taiwan in the autumn, though obviously the Chinese don't share their plans with me. But regardless, I think the fact that the US media is full of these sort of plans is going to reinforce Chinese suspicions that the Americans are stringing them along and are acting in bad faith. A big okay, that point I want between to China really go and the US and, uh, is coming. One which is going just to remind uh, I know it's been a bit chaotic, but uh, at least I got a show, <laughs> which is a start. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of back in, in my regular slot, except that it's it's an hour early for me, so, I mean, it's just coming up to four o'clock in the UK now, and I'm probably going to go for a beer very shortly, because I normally finish at five, and I'd rather go for a beer while the sun's shining, and I can sit outside and just enjoy a little bit of sunlight. So, um, that's what I'm going to do. So, a reminder, Revolution Radio's listener supporters, uh, if you... If you Call in at revolution.radio or freedomslips.com. You'll find a place that you can make a donation or you can buy a mug or a T-shirt or a cap or whatever and support us that way. Or you can just come down to the chat room and, and join in there. It's all support. It doesn't have to be financial. Uh, but we enjoy, we enjoy your company. We appreciate the management. Everybody's doing a tremendous job here. Uh, we're all we're all volunteers, so it does get a bit chaotic and a bit um, 
Stranger Times, but that's the nature of live radio. So it is what it is. And, um, yeah, 45 minutes. Uh, that was the, that was just about as up to date as I can possibly get because it was posted literally an hour ago. And, uh, it was fairly comprehensive coverage. Uh, I spoke Alexander, let me get his name again. Alexander Mercurich. And we've got a, an Odyssey channel. I've got an Odyssey channel if you want to come along and sign up for that because It's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth 